You're listening to Once, episode 218, Nimue. Welcome back to another episode of Once, the unofficial podcast for ABC's TV show, Once Upon a Time. I'm Daniel J. Lewis. I'm Jeremy Laughlin. I'm Aaron. And we have watched and rewatched this episode in Nimoe several times now, and we're ready to discuss it. So let's jump right into this, starting with, just to clarify where we're going with this, starts out the way we're going to be discussing it with past flashbacks from hundreds of years ago. And then there are the past events from six weeks ago or so now that they're starting to catch up. And then there's that one scene that's from present day storybook. So just in case you are slightly confused, that's kind of how it works. That's how we'll have our conversation here. So it starts out a thousand years before the age of Arthur. There was this little comment while they were in this desert area that I think tells us a little bit more about Merlin. He said they wouldn't trail escaped generals into this, much less foot soldiers. Both oh. Merlin and the other guy had ropes around their arms. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking that they're not talking about that they deserted an army because why would generals desert an army or some kind of military force? I think they were captured in battle and they were only simple foot soldiers. And because of that comparison, whoever they're running away from wouldn't come into this area to try and recapture generals, let alone these two guys who are, I presume, foot soldiers in some kind of battle. Yes. Now, I thought they were running from foot soldiers, but I didn't have a clear either time understanding of what was said. But whatever it was, I think they were escaped from somewhere because they had these ropes tied around them that looked like they were cut or ripped. Both of them had them. So maybe they were tied to each other. Maybe they were tied to something and escaped. But it does give me a little question of, okay, what's the backstory to this backstory? Right. And I don't know if it's important or if it just gives it some depth. It's probably not, but many times when I or we have said that before, it turned out that it was important. Like, oh, Rumpelstiltskin's father, probably not important. Oh, it's Peter Pan. (laughs) Or that lady that Neil was about to marry, probably not important. Oh, that's an evil minion of Peter Pan. An evil minion of something. And yeah, so the unimportant things were connected. Maybe they were running from Peter Pan. Maybe. <laughs> Way before his time. Yeah. They were. <laughs> but I don't know that the showrunners know that. Right. They were wearing identical clothing. Yeah, which is what what makes me think that they were, whatever it was, they were together in it. Mm-hmm. Whether it be foot soldiers in some kind of war or um, prisoners or something. They didn't really look like they were in prisoner uh, uniforms. Maybe they were slaves. I don't know. Yeah. I hope we don't get much more of a backstory I don't, unless it, they make it really important. It doesn't seem like it's very relevant. Right. Probably not. The fact that Merlin got his magic from this Holy Grail makes me wonder where did that Holy Grail come from? And maybe that ties back into Blue Fairy because 
Blue Fairy was once called, and maybe this was one of those throwaway lines, but she was once called the original magic. <laughs> yeah, she was. Wasn't wasn't she? And as far as we know, <laughs> Blue Fairy may be the only person in Once Upon a Time truly a magical being. The only? What, what's your definition of truly? Yes. Well, in the sense that she is of magic. She didn't have magic imbued upon her. She was <laughs> born of magic. What she about is dwarves? a magical being. Now, Zelina had magic when she was a baby. So that's kind of the odd thing out of this. But Zelina still had to learn how to use magic. So that's why I think that Blue Fairy is that only one. You look at everyone else and they got magic at some point. The Dark Ones, Merlin, Peter Pan, Emma, Regina, Cora, every other magical person that we know of that I can remember. Where did Regina get it? She learned it. Well, you can't just learn it, though. I feel that that's sort of something they've established is that not just anyone can learn it. They have to have some measure of it before they can learn it. I would say Emma had magic. Yeah. The Charmings can't just study with Regina and learn magic if she would teach them. The one other kind of exception to this is Pinocchio. He was a wooden boy turned into a real boy by the force of magic. But he is not, well, in a way, yes, he is born of magic, but he doesn't wield magic like Blue Fairy does. So basically, maybe Blue Fairy created this, but it's probably completely irrelevant. (laughs) Blue Fairy created this? Nah, I don't know. It's kind of weird. Forgetting that the Holy Grail was so tied to Arthurian legend. I didn't think of it as that until they said it out loud. Yeah, the Holy Grail, in our initial reactions I was talking about, and based some on what the chat room was saying at that time, that maybe that makes a connection to biblical tale. But actually, the more I researched the Holy Grail, I realized it has a lot more ties to Arthurian legend than to anything biblical. Yes, there's a particular painting. Some people have told a story about the Holy Grail in many different ways. And Mm -hmm. it's been the object of many different stories, primarily Arthurian legend. One particular story says that the Holy Grail was the cup that Jesus used at the Last Supper or that Passover meal uh, just before he was killed. Uh, There is also Dan Brown wrote a fictional book (laughs) that the Holy Grail is not actually a physical item, but that it is the, the birth, the bloodline of Jesus Christ through Mary Magdalene and oh, weird grief. things like that. <laughs> yeah, so this Holy Grail is for Arthurian legend. It is, yes, some kind of cup that was sought after the quest for the Holy Grail, the Grail quest, and mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff. For everything else, it's been interpreted dozens, maybe even hundreds right. of different ways. And it sounds like it didn't start out as having anything to do with the Last Supper or anything like that. There was a goblet or a chalice or something that was in some of these legends and different stories just sort of, as they do, started to merge and get combined into things. Uh, Once upon a time, if people are telling some of these stories a couple thousand years from now, Once Upon a Time could be a huge point (laughs) in history where many stories got mushed together into one. Oh, I could just imagine the conversations. <laughs> Rumpelstiltskin was Cinderella's fairy godmother? <laughs> yes. 
There's a way to do that on Wikipedia, right? Where everything that is old is now referenced in pop culture. And so they literally list all the times in whatever TV shows, whatever <laughs> legend was brought up. So mm-hmm. it's very plausible that that could happen. <laughs> so the one guy whose name we'll probably never know got to be poofed after trying to drink from the cup. But Merlin didn't. Now, I noted something interesting about what he said right before he got poofed (laughs) he said the gods could do worse which it was a little bit subtle but there was just this sort of overall lack of humility on his part i felt from that line just sort of high opinion of himself i guess for some reason yeah and kind of a sense of entitlement exactly but then merlin was kind of the opposite with the asking permission and i don't know if the kneeling had anything to do with the overall attitude it felt like it did the penitent man will pass (laughs) and uh and he gave thanks once he even picked it up and realized he didn't die now i don't know what he was giving thanks to since they were (laughs) just uh pluralizing gods again but you know it was a humble attitude of some kind which brings into question how did nimue get all of the magical abilities later didn't really understand that unless she was somehow by whatever judges the person picking it up and drinking from it deemed potentially worthy because she had that choice which i'm sure we'll get into more but whether to kill or not kill so she had perhaps the potential to be good like merlin i wonder if it's kind of um that the cup is neutral and that they needed to create a balance because merlin was so good They needed a counterpart, like they needed something as evil Mm. just to create a balance in the universe. A lot of TV shows that I've watched of this kind of genre talk about how the universe needs to be balanced Mm. and it can't be so good or so evil because it just throws off like the cosmic balance of things. Yeah, that is pretty common. I've never quite found the logic in it, but (laughs) it is common. (laughs) And then from this, Merlin gets magic and creates Camelot, complete with a tower. Right. <laughs> and presumably, it really is Merlin's tower. <laughs> yeah, presumably, since Camelot is really close to the Enchanted Forest, he then, like we were saying in the initial reactions, he then also created the Enchanted Forest, which is really cool to then, mm-hmm. that's a backstory that we never thought we'd get, kind of like the backstory to Emma's yellow bug. We never thought we'd <laughs> get that backstory, but we did. Maybe he somehow accidentally created that too. but then the next scene in this past flashback says 200 (laughs) years ago now in the initial reactions we were a little bit confused about this and i tweeted out to adam horowitz and then he tweeted a clarification that it was actually a mistake (laughs) a typo to say 200 years and He said it's supposed to actually have been 500 years, which now makes perfect sense because in the this scene is when Merlin said 500 years ago Mm -hmm. was when he drank from the cup. And this makes sense then with Nemoe being the first dark one and then maybe two or 300 years, about 300 probably or so, passing before Rumpelstiltskin became the dark one. Mm -hmm. And then he was the dark one for about under 200 years. That's uh, that works very well now meshing it together with the timeline and keb now has her life made easier <laughs> thanks adam horowitz oh what's hilarious about this is how many times have we made fun of them for just saying many years ago 
And yet, if they had said many years ago and let the dialogue tell the story, we wouldn't have had a problem. <laughs> I think that Nimue must not have been the Dark One for a very long time, though. If we saw all of those Dark Ones at the end, that's how many were between her and Rumpelstiltskin. It felt like too many, given how long Rumpel was the Dark One. There were about a dozen or more. I tried to count, and it was very difficult, but there were at least a dozen. I kept hitting the number around 12, at least. So... There Except have the been... rest were making you stop. You just didn't <laughs> perceive that. <laughs> the, I think that the 300 years between Nimue and Rumpelstiltskin is enough time for all of those other 12 Dark Ones to fit in. And then Rumpelstiltskin held on to his dagger. Maybe Nimue was the first one to have the dagger, but she lost it or whoever became the next Dark One mm-hmm. lost it. And then Rumpelstiltskin held on to the dagger. That dang dagger, that kind of immortality is yeah. just not what it's cracked up to be. <laughs> Chronicles of the Dagger. (laughs) Well, there's definitely more to where this episode ended in the flashbacks of the past that we need to see because at this point, it's like they don't even know that that controls her, I don't think. The broken piece of sword. Well, Merlin did say to Emma that he created the dagger to control her so that she couldn't have her reign of terror on the land. Right. Now, did she know that she was being controlled by the dagger? Right. By the time that she put him in the tree, she probably knew because she did take the dagger. I wonder if we're going to see that kind of in between those two things. Now, while Merlin is playing Jesus there in the town, oh, good grief. he has his apprentice with him and the apprentice is dressed in that all red robe. Do you know mm-hmm. why? It looked like the sword in the stone. Fantasia. Fantasia. Also. Fantasia oh. and a little bit like sword in the stone. It's kind of both, really. In Fantasia, with the Sorcerer's Apprentice scene with Mickey and Yensid, Yensid is in blue, Mickey is in red. So that makes it seem like the Apprentice is actually Mickey, but yet we've seen this name otherwise in other places that said Yensid. So if Merlin is the Sorcerer, maybe Yensid was the Apprentice, or maybe Merlin is also known as Yensid. Maybe we'll discover that at some point. But in any case, red robes, red attire... Matches with both Mickey the Mouse from Fantasia, as well as Arthur from the Disney movie Sword in the Stone. So it was Vortigan who had been questing for the Grail and burned Nimue's town in the process of this. And I think maybe we all have Vortigan to blame for the fact that there are only two Middle Mist flowers in existence today. It's all Vortigan's fault. Oh. (laughs) Despite Merlin and Arthur's noble attempts. That Vortigan. Oh, man. Now, Vortigan himself, the name is based on uh, another character called Vortigern, G-E-R-N at the end. That sounds like the girl version. (laughs) And he was a 5th century warlord in Britain and often appears in many modern Arthurian fiction, including the movie that's actually coming out next year, 2016, that will be called Knights of the Round Table, King Arthur. And in that, the character of Vortigan will be played by Jude Law. So Vortigan will have some kind of prominent part there, but he'll be Vortigern in that movie. So watch for that. Mm. And we've got a link to Wikipedia if you want to do some more research there. I did wonder, since Merlin can't read Nimue and he Mm. can't see her future, is there something that made her touched by magic before this Mm. that makes it that way? Or is it one of those classic things that... I can read everyone except you. 
You are my soulmate because I can't read you. You make me feel normal. <laughs> I think maybe that could have been a red flag that her future was so undetermined because mm -hmm. she wasn't sure whether she was going to make the choice for darkness or not. It's kind of on the fence. It's like, I want revenge. And that's going to look like keeping these flowers from becoming extinct. What's more <laughs> harmless than a flower? Hmm. Now, there was this nice little Easter egg that Leslie pointed out that Merlin told the apprentice to go check on the brooms. Oh, yeah, I noticed that. It was cute. I didn't even notice that. <laughs> That's kind of what made me realize that he was the apprentice. I didn't I hadn't really picked up on it before that. But as Merlin and Nimoe's relationship blossoms, as do the Middle Mist flowers mm. in Camelot, he's asking for a friend. It was a cute little dialogue between them and to see the the nice love between them <laughs> and see what their relationship could be. But Nimue is secretly holding on to this revenge and bitterness. Is she though? I, I think so. Because see, that's the thing that was hardest. She's <laughs> She was hard even for me to read and I don't, you know, read people with magic. It's like she didn't seem, she seemed totally on board with everything they talked about. Until they went through her village later. So, but you would think that for her to have that reaction later, she must, even at this point, have some of that bitterness still somewhere. But I don't know how aware of it she is. They did talk about it before they visited the village. He said that he couldn't kill somebody with his magic because it would create darkness in him. And mm. she's probably even thinking, well, I want to use the magic to be able to stop bad people and prevent bad things from happening. But she went on this quest to get rid of his magic when really, as she put it, it was in her living room. So she could have gone and drank from it at any time. Yeah. So she seemed to be on board. Maybe she was just waffling. So he mentioned that he could form this holy grail into a sword. That was the most out of left field thing in this entire episode to me. <laughs> but when I first saw the holy grail... I even said in the chat room, boy, that looks just like the sword and the dagger. Mm, and I, I was, didn't. I was thinking even then, <laughs> maybe something happened that turned it into a sword. And that's what he decides to do. But I think the important thing here is that it can separate Merlin from his magic and immortality while still keeping Merlin Merlin. So it makes me wonder if Arthur isn't necessarily wanting to kill Merlin but wanting Merlin's magic. Eh, Arthur is not that deep. Arthur is kind of a man-child. Yeah, he needs a timeout. Uh, this scene with Merlin and Nimue had several beautiful concepts in it, I thought. This is a Jane Espenson episode, so you've got a lot of intricate, not just storytelling, but she's really good with characters and actually having depth and people and not just an exposition of plot. Mm -hmm. I love the way we hear this different times in fantasy and science fiction where one person is immortal or ages very slowly and another ages at a normal rate or from their perspective quickly. But instead of saying it like, I leave everybody behind because they get old and die, he said, if I married you, I'd have to watch as you leave me behind. But he sees it as being trapped and other people getting old in the natural way and moving on. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a great way to put it. And the whole recurring theme of life is made of little moments. I really liked that concept. It's even later as 
jump ahead a little bit as the apprentice said, it's too bad you couldn't have seen ahead and never talked to her. And he didn't want that because he cherishes the time that he had with her, despite what happened. And, you know, ask any parent who has lost a child, Mm -hmm. uh, regardless of how long they had that child. And you ask them, would you rather have never had the child? And I think any parent with love would say no, because the moments I had Mm -hmm. are worth the pain. I loved every moment, even if it was short. Right. Mm -hmm. There were these beautiful moments in this beautiful moment. And then suddenly they want to remake the Holy Grail into a sword to cleave themselves. (laughs) I mean, I mean, cut away the magic. And then there was that little ring that he made. Yeah, And I feel like we're going to see that again. Probably. Mm. Possibly. It wasn't the only ring in this episode either. I wonder if this ring could be key to everyone else in Storybrooke being able to find Nimue as Merlin's voicemail told them to do. (laughs) Hmm. Interesting. I forgot about that. Now that this episode has happened, I'm wondering if he was confused about what time period he was in. (laughs) No, I think... I think there is really some way that they are going to have to find Nimue. I don't know how. We've seen them break interesting laws of magic before, so maybe they'll have to do a little seance and bring Ew. Nimue back. <laughs> I, I yeah. See, I still, I feel like that voicemail was just before tree time, but maybe not. Maybe. That would be very weird, but since he's communicated a lot since then... Yeah, and we still don't know where Merlin is in Storybrooke. And right. we don't quite know what happens to him back here in Camelot. So as they go to Nimue's village, uh, it was Oxley, which sounds like Pigland. Goodness. <laughs> I, it's crazy to realize that Merlin is essentially the reason that Vortigan destroyed Nimue's village. Because Vortigan was looking for the Holy Grail. And Merlin had it. Merlin hid it somewhere. And maybe he moved it around between different places. Or maybe Vortigan just knew it was hidden somewhere here in the greater Camelot area. The greater Camelot area. (laughs) (laughs) It's out in the suburbs, maybe. I should just burn those to the ground. I don't know why he would talk like that. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's how the suburbs talk. (laughs) Where you're from. (laughs) Yeah. I liked... The passage of time visible in the destruction or just sort of the crumbling of the sign between when Merlin passed by that area with Emma and when he went there with Nimue. So this apparently is when she drank from the grail. And didn't go poof. And didn't go poof. Now, so she was, yeah. We were talking about that a little bit earlier, but there is a great thread in our once podcast forums if so if you go to oncepodcast.com slash 218 we'll have a link in there to the show notes theorizing about all of this nimue as the first dark one and how does this all uh, fit together three pages of comments over there (laughs) yowza and one of the thoughts there, this is from Sci-Fi Girl, said, The grail was setting very nicely on a stone. What if it is the stone and not the actual cup that decides if a person is worthy to drink and receive the gifts? The grail could sit there undisturbed for all eternity until someone worthy came along. Because no one who is not worthy can touch it to lift it away. 
has Excalibur, which is the grail, been put back into the same stone for safekeeping? Consider this, when the sword is in the stone, only the worthy can pull it out, with the same consequences to an unworthy attempt as Merlin's friend encountered. But once the sword is removed, anyone can touch it without dying. For that matter, Merlin's friend was turned to dust just for touching the grail, albeit with the intention of drinking. But after Merlin removed it from its stone pedestal, it seemed like anyone could touch it. So I think the stone was the guard or slash test. Once Merlin came along, he was trusted with all the power, including the grail itself, to protect and guard as he saw fit. Yeah, I love that. I think that's more than just convenient because it is the same materials and it's the same exact concept. The concept would almost work even if the Grail and Excalibur were not the same matter, but they actually are. So it's perfect. Great theory, sci-fi girl. I think that does, yeah, make total sense. In this scene, they were talking about, um, this is when Merlin mentioned that if he uses his magic to kill, the darkness takes root inside of him. There were some like very distinct language differences in this episode compared to what we've seen in the past. They talked a lot about that it darkens your soul. And in the past, it's always been about darkening your heart. So I just wonder if if it's uh, because of the power, because it's from the Holy Grail, that it's somehow more significant because it seems like Regina is redeemed now. So obviously Mm. the darkness didn't affect her enough that she can't now use her magic for good. Um, But it's almost like because this is the dark one, because they have so much power, it doesn't matter what they do. The darkness will kind of overtake them if they use it like once it takes root inside their soul and contrary to that popular song that everyone seems to know how to play on a piano heart and soul to (laughs) some people do mean the same thing i know to other people means something different Mm -hmm. so maybe here in once upon a time they are using them somewhat interchangeably but we do get to see actually blackened hearts Mm -hmm from people who have killed or done bad things like that or just lived a life of evil. And uh, so we saw that Snow's heart started to turn black because she killed Cora. We heard all of the fear about Emma going dark (laughs) because she might kill someone and then did kill someone but didn't really go dark, at Mm. least not yet. I mean, how many people has David killed? He's a little dumb sometimes, but he's not dark. But see, there is a difference between <laughs> killing as a hero and murdering. Yes. Murder is is very different because war, you know, we don't, yes, people die in war. People are killed. And in a way it is murder, but there is a very big difference between like preconceived murder and intending to kill someone because of hate and malice and all of that and killing someone out of defense or protecting. Although then again, that's what Emma did. (laughs) See, yeah. And (laughs) that's why that whole thing was so bad. And the only reason I say it, because because I completely agree. And I think it's the the whole mantra of heroes don't kill. It's just overly simplistic. And this is a little overly simplistic too. Killing for revenge is bad. But, you know, and I think that's what Nimue's motives were although it was very nearly self-defense except that the two of them were both sort of immortal at that point so she really didn't have to kill him but he could have killed so many others vortigan i mean he could have killed so many others he kind of needed to die 
I mean, I guess it's all about what was happening in her heart. Right. Yeah, yeah because if he needed to die, then he better do it and decrease the surplus oh, population. Gosh. Sorry, I, I went into Christmas Carol <laughs> mode. Surplus Sorry about that. villain population. Um, but each Wearing. should not have been Nimue because Nimue's mm-hmm. motive was revenge. Right. It's kind of like last season when Emma killed Cruella and then she was about to kill Lily. Regina said that was an accident. Cruella, that wasn't pure evil killing. And then said this, this is not an accident. Like this, you can't come back from. Because also Lily wasn't doing anything. Like it's not like she was also holding a knife to Emma's throat. So it's, yeah. I think they did kind of establish that last season, although the you know we have a whole we have a whole bunch of podcasts from last season where we <laughs> talk about our issues with that, but right. <laughs> yeah, I think definitely where your heart is at as well is a major thing when you when it comes to this topic. Mm-hmm. So they go to see this eternal flame, which is the flame of Prometheus, and uh, Prometheus is from Greek mythology. And one of the things that Prometheus was known for in this Greek mythology is bringing fire to mankind, being the one to bring fire to mankind. And that's where this flame and the fire of Prometheus idea comes from. So what was the bit about the flame being stolen? He stole it. Prometheus stole it. And Prometheus, through different things, was considered a thief in different ways. And apparently this was maybe the last thing that he stole before. It depends on which mythology they're going with and which story. But uh, one way is maybe that he was cast down to earth after this point by Zeus or you know anything, any odd thing like that. But it's all part of Greek mythology, this idea of the fire of Prometheus and being the first fire of mankind. Hmm. I don't know why they had to go there. <laughs> to the flame? Yeah, there there was something about this flame that had to be used sure. for turning the grail into a sword. But where was the ember with the spark? It was somehow hidden inside Nimue, which was somehow inside Emma as being the first dark one. She took it from Nimue. I don't understand why they had to be in that spot. Well, here in the past flashbacks, they have to be in the spot because that's where the fire is at that time. And Nimue, when she became the Dark One and did crush that heart, the fire then was sucked out and left only an amber there, an an ember. And maybe... You're right. I keep, every time they do this forward and back flashback, all of it flashback in the same locations... (laughs) everything starts to bleed in my head. That is more what I was thinking about when Merlin went there with Emma than when he went there with Nimue. And maybe when that fire went out, when she killed uh, Vortigan, the fire actually then, in a way, transferred into her or maybe from this and something that we didn't see, maybe it was cut, maybe they just didn't Mm -hmm. plan on showing it. Maybe she took that fire to ensure that the sword and the dagger could never be reunited. Which would make sense if it she would took it intentionally. Yeah. When it looked like Vortigan killed her, right before that, she yelled, I can do this, you don't know. And then she died. At the time, it didn't make sense. Of course, on the rewatch, we know she's trying to say, I have magic now. I'm totally going to rip his heart out and crush it. <laughs> but then apparently she had to pretend to die, I guess, to show Merlin what death looks like. 
Or was it really just for dramatic emphasis and to fool us? Both. Probably both. <laughs> was this the first heart rip? Ever? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Probably. Probably. She looked like she didn't even realize that's what would happen. Right. <laughs> like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. Because that was the darkness taking her <laughs> over. She would still be at the, like, honeymoon phase of the dark one, like where Emma was when she first got to Storybrooke. <laughs> the honeymoon phase. I don't All know. Right. How else do you describe it? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah, so she, she crushes the heart and then she immediately goes all crocodile. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that what would have happened to Emma if she had crushed so. Meredith's heart? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Would have taken hold. I think they were also trying to make sure we could distinguish between the two time periods that were happening yeah. in the same scene. <laughs> but guys, we're getting a little bit of that build up and switch. I'm loving the story. I love this episode, but for years, it's been the dark one, the darkness. Even more recently, it's been, and you talked a little bit about this, Daniel, in the initial reaction. It's been Merlin battled the darkness and kept it from consuming everything. And he tethered it to a human soul and blah, 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 blah. Epic story. And now it's kind of like, not only is the, the story looking a little different than the way it was recounted, but it's sort of like, actually, it's just kind of this power. And it's not like just one. And it kind of can attach to people when they drank from this grail. And they choose kind of whether it's light or dark and with a choice in here. And can they control it? And boo, 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 boo. It's not the darkness anymore. What is that? Why does it always change? It's about as easy to understand, (laughs) or maybe one step easier than trying to understand the birth of aliens from the movie Prometheus. (laughs) (laughs) Nice Prometheus tie-in. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think, too, it's just storytelling, right? Like, people Mm -hmm. recount stories a lot differently. He was a young boy. I mean, we were... (laughs) I did a training workshop last weekend and we talked about gossip and then we talked about that game telephone that you used to play <laughs> at camp where you whisper the message from person to person and then the last person says it and it's has nothing to do with the, the way the first person says it. Like, I think that men of legend and women of legend have to be like, it has to be a good story if it was just like. Yeah, so Merlin accidentally (laughs) left his Holy Grail unattended, and this crazy girl that wanted to kill people drank from it, and so (laughs) then she became the Dark One. That's not a good story. Yeah. And plus, it would spoil too much in the first episodes of this season, and then we would have had nothing to talk about. (laughs) And it was all a lot of metaphorical speech Mm -hmm. to say he battled the darkness. It's just like when he said that the Dark One destroyed or killed yep. Nimue. That is it's, true. It's all metaphor. So while when we hear a metaphor, we interpret it one way and the writers mean it a different way and the characters mean it a different way as well. And it really is how he sees it, but it came out sounding different to everybody. Mm-hmm. And I don't really agree with that statement after watching this episode. I think that Nimue made a choice to let the darkness overtake her. I don't think that the darkness killed her. Well, it, I, I mean, semantics. He talks about it like cancer. Yeah, but like he even said, and I have this in my notes because I loved this line when he said, I'm not fighting for him. I'm fighting for you. Mm-hmm. When she's trying to justify killing this guy, 
He says it's not about him. It's basically like, I understand that he's a really bad guy, but if you kill him, it's you who's going to suffer. It's mm-hmm. kind of like uh, they always say, like, when you hold unforgiveness, it's like it's poisoning you. It's not hurting the other person. Right. And it's kind of the same idea. So he he didn't care about the other guy. He cared about her making a choice she couldn't come back from. But she did make that choice. So, I mean, yes, the darkness consumed her. She didn't make the choice because she had darkness, because she was completely neutral until then. Mm. She chose darkness. And I like a suggestion here from Matthew Paul in our chat room that maybe the darkness grew through each dark one, like the darkness fed through each dark one's experiences and dark deeds, then multiplying over and over with each generation of the dark one. Yeah. Maybe, but there is this big fear of the first dark one. Yeah. And, but, <laughs> but he said that all the evil that followed was born out of her. All dark magic. And yeah, all of that. But it's still, it's sort of like power that he also had turned dark in her. And that's where the darkness, dark one, was created. Rather than something that was already there. And didn't Blue call Rumple's magic magic that didn't belong in the Enchanted Forest? Yes, she did. Huh. I wonder what that's about. (laughs) Well, that kind of makes sense if Camelot's not part of the Enchanted Forest. And in the way that they're giving us this backstory, technically the darkness didn't exist before this. It was Nimue's actions that created the darkness. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like the Holy Grail was darkness in this little thing and this came from somewhere else. It, it's that it didn't exist. They created it here. And I have to say, the actress who plays Nimue, her name's Caroline Ford, I don't think they could have picked anyone better. She played, I agree. She played her good days really well. She plays her evil days really well. She's not, she's great at both and she's convincing. And she, even though they just introduced her, she feels like the right person. She makes this sort of introduction of a first dark one now in Emma's head feel like it belongs there. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. And amazingly good. And the makeup, too, helps a lot. <laughs> She's <But> creepy. <laughs> she freaks me out, actually. <laughs> I don't know that I can agree that darkness didn't exist before this. Maybe dark magic didn't exist before this. But if that guy mm. was going around burning people's villages, human or not, that's dark. True. That's darkness. That's evil. Right, right. Yeah, That that's where I fell into actually the way they were using the phrase darkness to mean the dark magic, this dark goop that's going around, mm. that kind of darkness. <laughs> but yeah, the... Evil existed before then, and maybe not even only Vortigan, because there was the possibility that Merlin and this other guy were enslaved, or they were in a battle, there was a war, and whenever there's a war, it's because someone is being bad, yes. basically. You know, people don't go to war <laughs> there's a because everybody is being good. <laughs> that just doesn't happen that way. <laughs> oh, goodness. But speaking of being good, I want to thank some people who have been very good to this podcast, and we appreciate their support for keeping the podcast going. Our kind heroes, David Newland, Lisa Slack, Greg Shope, Marianne Lavati, Jessica Olson, Jennifer A. Trace, and Irvin Z. Martinez. Thank you very much for your kind support. 
through Patreon and through our other platforms that we have for supporting the podcast. And also, we have 31 backers on Patreon. Thank you very much. Your support really helps us to be able to do things. Like we are live streaming back on our website, but the video quality has to be really low so that the sound quality is still good. And there are some things that we'll be able to do someday in the future where we can actually improve that video quality. And if you want to help keep the podcast going and help it improve and enable us to do awesome things, then please check out the options over at oncepodcast.com slash hero. You can become a regular monthly patron through Patreon. The link is there at oncepodcast.com slash hero. Contribute any amount per month, and we are grateful for that. You have several options there. Or do your Christmas shopping on amazon.com by clicking on our link on that same page. And then anything you purchase within 24 hours of clicking our link gives us a small percentage back, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. All of those options are available over at oncepodcast.com slash hero. And thank you for your support. You are our hero. Now on to past as in six weeks ago from this episode. (laughs) That is so six weeks ago. As many stories do, they start out in grannies. But (laughs) Emma's outside making these dream catchers. And it made me wonder, does Emma already know why she's making these dream catchers? Yeah, Hook is a little disturbed that she's doing this instead of sleeping. She's doing this thing having to do with witchcraft and taking our memories. And he didn't (laughs) necessarily say removing our memories which is what Emma ended up doing. Oh, yeah, he said pulling memories out of people's heads. Yeah, which she does do. She just doesn't put them back or doesn't... You're right. I was kind of like, (laughs) he knows that's what they do? Goodness. But does she know what she's doing this for? I... Because she's had some interesting foresight already, like getting Violet's heart to break Henry's heart before they even knew that Regina's tear would not work. So can Emma see the future? And oh. and, and do, is she doing this knowing this is what I need to do in order to protect everyone from what's coming or in order to make this all work and defeat the darkness or whatever this thing? Well, she hasn't mentioned to anyone that she could see any of the future. Right. Which I suppose she still could. Maybe she doesn't understand what she's seeing. Yeah, Rumpel didn't understand what he was seeing the first time. I think she's just trying to pass the time. There's been a comment when she was asleep beside Merida in the premiere of this season that why do you, like he said, why do you think I spun so much? Because we don't need to sleep anymore. So I think maybe she's just, she knows that they can be useful because she's used one before and they're very symbolic to her. She's always had one even before, like we've seen in Tallahassee and other flashbacks like before she even knew magic existed. So she maybe is just trying to keep her hands busy so that she doesn't uh, accidentally blow people up or something. Yeah, I think that's certainly a big thing. But I do also wonder, does she know it's coming? And one other thought is maybe she took everyone's memories ultimately to protect them from something and she's going to give them back at the right time. Right. Yeah. she um, She's doing it instead of sleeping. So she does need something to pass the time. I mean, I don't know if... Actually, who am I kidding? I would love to not need sleep. I would get so much done, and I probably wouldn't be making dream catchers. I would do great things. Emma, you need to start a business or a hobby or something. In the Enchanted Forest. In the Enchanted Forest. In Camelot, yes. Or start a podcast. 
I can help you with that. <laughs> she could broadcast. I mean, like we know that there's kind of the magic that works that way, but she's trying not to use magic. True. I liked this sort of explanation from Merlin of just like sort of a glimpse. He understands to some degree what it is to sort of bear that power. He said that power, light or dark, is a burden, but love helps. And he was encouraging patience with Emma, which I see as starting to really like his character in general. He seems like a very patient, wise person. You'd have to be patient after several hundred years, much of which was spent as a tree. (laughs) He does seem patient, but he also talks a lot. Like Hook was saying, he talks a lot in kind of riddles and not he's not super clear with them. And but it, I don't think he it means makes to it be. <laughs> seem like he's holding things back that would be useful for them to know. Mm. I think he doesn't see all of it. And so he share, he seems to share what he knows. It could be that he's holding things back because it's that great paradox that if you knew the future, would that prevent you from causing the future? Mm-hmm. Or if you knew the future, would that make you cause that future? It's that kind of thing. And if he can see the future, then maybe he's not saying all of these things because he knows you need to do this without knowing the outcome. Yeah, you could mess somebody up pretty badly. <laughs> and he, But he only sees pieces as well. We see where that got rumpled, though. <laughs> so as Merlin then talks to Emma, he says that Emma is the most powerful dark one ever. Like a big dark snowball. Is that because she already had magic? I think, yes, that, because she's the savior, because she wields white magic. White magic. Or light magic. I, well. Let's not get racist. We'll call it light magic. (laughs) She doesn't, uh, I don't know if she keeps the title. She does. She is keeping the title at that point of savior. I got the impression that it was more that it builds from the original and just gains strength. As it goes from one person to the next. Like the snowball effect. Perhaps consuming each individual's potential for darkness. Hmm. Ooh, there. I dovetailed that for them. They're just going to have to run with that. <laughs> yeah, but Emma doesn't have any potential for darkness. Or she shouldn't. Oh, that's right. It got, all, got taken. Or did it? It. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that was ever clear. Regardless, <laughs> she became... Like, I think if there was a dark one after her, that would be the most powerful dark one. I think. Perhaps, yeah. That's a good theory. And that could be Henry. The magic stops with Henry. Maybe. Is there any kind of... I know we've said that this might be the last season. Is there any confirmation or even chatter about that aside from our podcast? I talked to our friend Jeff Roney over at onceuponatimepodcast.com. And he thinks that there is still another season. I think season five will be the last. He thinks season six will be the last And looking at the momentum they're building for wanting to have this amazing 100th episode, it does kind of feel like they're going to want to ride that momentum a little bit longer. And ABC and Disney certainly have a good reason to keep this show going, just Mm. as with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. It really supports a lot of the other merchandising and movies and other things that Disney is doing. Like, yes, look at how we've been reviewing the fairy tale movies that have been coming out. Cinderella will review uh, Sleeping Beauty or all of the other upcoming movies. And we're doing that because we know the Once Upon a Time fans, you would like the movie probably or be interested in it. And Disney is capitalizing on that. And so keeping this show going helps with all of that. 
But at the same time, the writers do have an end game in mind. By the way, I mentioned Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Did you know we have an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast on our network? Go over to welcometolevel7.com and listen to that podcast over there. They do a great job of covering Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as well as the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe. And they they are great at it. It's a lot of fun. Check it out at welcometolevel7.com. They are on our network, and it's great to have them because... They do an amazing job. And if you've never watched Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I didn't give it a try until recently, and it's really good. And it really (laughs) works with the movies, which, on that point, they have a planned story arc for the movies. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. flows perfectly into that. With Once Upon a Time, these guys should know better than anyone the importance of an end date to a series, having come from Lost. Yes. They, I presume, lived through season three of Lost, and they they just, let's just say they should know the value. So hopefully they understand that, yeah, it's a nice cash cow, possibly, yeah. but for story integrity, mm-hmm. they should be pushing for an end date so they know that they don't have to drag it out. Mm-hmm. And that's, I asked, because this whole concept of the first Dark One, the original evil, is very Buffy. Uh, final season. Spoiler alert. <laughs> In the final season of Buffy, basically everything came full circle. And there was, I'm going to talk about it again later because a, there were a lot of similarities in this episode to the entire plot of season seven. So if you haven't seen season seven of Buffy, you don't need to anymore because you've now seen this episode of once. But, um, <laughs> and and that was the final season. Like it was kind of a whole play on you end with the first and it all comes around mm-hmm. to that. So if this was the final season and they they know that, um, I agree with Jeremy. Like they should know the value of an end date when they are dealing with stories like this because they're so intricate and we get so frustrated when they screw them up. <laughs> um, and yeah. Kitsis and Horowitz have said they know how they want the series to end. Good. When? We don't know, but they do know how they want it to end. With the words, and they lived happily ever after. That's what I think. Yeah, (laughs) that's the extent of it. (laughs) That was the same with Buffy. Season seven was predicted, or not predicted, foreshadowed in season one. Like the ending was very, the themes were very common. I mean, not everybody is Joss Whedon, but I -hmm. suspect it could be the same for Kisses and Horowitz. Yeah. It's just how much, how many crazy ingredients they add to the sandwich between the bread of season one and whatever the final season is. What else are they going to put on there? Is it all going to taste good together? Be careful how you build your sandwich. And I mean, Buffy did almost get canceled in season five. It switched networks. There was this whole like drama behind the scenes and they made season five end in such a way that that could have been the end and it would Mm. have been okay for us as fans. It didn't end up being the end, but it could have been. So the fire lives on. And speaking of fire, the Fire of Prometheus, I, I want to share a little clarification here because it was actually this scene where we learn more about the Fire of Prometheus. It was the Greek mythology is that Prometheus stole the fire in order to give it to mankind. Oh, so he was kind of the Robin Hood of the galaxies <laughs> and the elements. Because without that. fire, man, <laughs> dead. <laughs> When Emma was saying goodbye to Hook, she said, I love you too. Is that the first time we've heard Emma say that to Hook? In a casual so. way. She said it in a big dramatic, I have been trying to say this for months. 
but I have too many walls kind of way. That was the first time where she was kind of like, let's just underline that that wall's been taken down. Now, that little ring that Herc gave her, which that was great scene between them. (laughs) Whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) But um, it's very difficult to see because they don't show it very much and it's moving around. So it's a little blurry. But I did get a screenshot that'll be in the show notes once podcast.com slash 218. On the side of the ring, there's a little flower that looks a lot like the flower tattoo that Emma has on her wrist. Neat little thing. Yeah. But about that ring, Sarah sent in this feedback saying, I was rewatching the episode, Poor Unfortunate Souls, from last season, and I noticed something about Hook's interactions with young Ursula back in the Enchanted Forest. Before Hook betrayed Ursula, there were a few scenes when Hook looked as though he really was concerned for her and looked a bit sad when she explained why her voice meant so much to her. In the episode, we are led to believe that Hook understands Ursula because he has also lost a love, Mila. But what if it was much simpler than that? I think Hook understood exactly how Ursula felt about her voice and fully gets that a gift from a mother is precious because he probably also lost his mother at a young age. Perhaps he too holds on to a cherished gift from his mother, her ring. This would explain why it meant so much to Hook to give it to Emma and also could explain why the writers had him wearing it on a chain as opposed to showing it off and wearing it on his hand, since we know he isn't shy about having his jewelry very visible. And yes, he is already (laughs) wearing several rings. Perhaps Hook's mother is or parents are somehow connected to Greek mythology and the ring is really imbued with magic or is another gift from the gods. Yes, This would mean that the show has introduced us to yet another magical MacGuffin. However, in some ways, the show has been setting this up for a while with hints at how good Hook is at surviving. Hook boasts a lot about how he is great at surviving, and there may be a legitimate reason why, besides dumb luck. And, you know, this wouldn't be the first... This is me. Now, great feedback, Sarah. Thank you very much for that. Yes, yes. This wouldn't be the first ring imbued with magic that was originally a gift from a mother remember the iconic ring that david gave to snow was from his mother doll and then rumple later imbued it with magic imbued or enchanted it so that prince charming could find snow white did anyone ever cleave that magic or is it still on there (laughs) and then there was another ring somewhat touched by magic that merlin Gave to Nimue. Yeah. Lots of rings. Lots of magic. Lots of imbuing. <laughs> and to think it was so hard to find magic in Storybrooke in season one. Well, yeah. And, you know, that's the other thing. There was that ring in Storybrooke that, remember, it was very hard to find magic in Storybrooke. And one of the last things that Regina had to do in order for Jefferson to open the hat so Regina could get that poison apple yeah. Was use a ring that was imbued with some kind of magic <laughs> that allowed Regina to see a picture of Daniel. It was the ring that Daniel was going to give her. Oh, and you know yeah. what? I'm going to guess Daniel got that from his mother, too. Good guess. That's, that does tend to be a trend. Forget the whole he went to Jared thing. He went to his mom. Wow. <laughs> you know who his great, 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 great grandma was? Nimue. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's an odd thought to imagine. Mm-hmm. I couldn't actually find any other photos that showed this ring really well. There are photos that look like maybe 
Hook has a ring there, but he has other jewelry on necklaces. And those jewelry pieces are hanging from rings. So it's very hard to figure out, is this ring he's actually been wearing in the TV series for a while? How did they not get killed any time they've been sneaking through the Enchanted Forest or the Jungle in Neverland or anywhere with him? He must <laughs> clink like crazy with all that stuff. It's because the eyeliner makes him blend in with the darkness. So then they just think it's a raccoon. Wow. A raccoon that wears jewelry. <laughs> But we did also get a nice little quote back to pop culture. We didn't actually hear the song, but uh, Andrea from Los Angeles pointed out the song lyric Emma quoted to Hook was from the song Working My Way Back to You, sung in 1966 by The Four Seasons, then made popular years later in 1979 when sung by the R&B group The Spinners as a medley with another song, Forgive Me Girl. The song is about a guy who cheated on his girlfriend and abused her emotionally. She walks out on him and he realizes what he lost and tries to win her back. I have no idea what the writers were trying to say using this lyric. And if you want to watch both versions of the song, we'll have the YouTube videos in the show notes as well as the links there at oncepodcast.com slash 218. I think it was just a light moment. I wouldn't read too much into it. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) In fact, it probably came to Jane Espenson's mind the way song lyrics do when you say one sentence and you're just trying to say something normal and a song lyric comes to mind. I thought it was, it was probably my favorite of all things. It was probably my favorite Emma and Hook moment ever. It was, it was nice to see her be lighthearted in the midst of all this. It was something beyond the beginning state. It always feels like I didn't even realize until kind of this scene. It always feels like they're in, sort of the the beginning and the budding of a relationship, even though there's kind of a lot of history there. And this kind of gave some depth to it. It shows that they actually know each other. Because <laughs> he says, I, I always, or I know when you're quoting something, she says, and I love that you never know what it is. <laughs> and that's what Jane Espenson is so good at writing. Mm-hmm. And this being a Jane Espenson episode, you look at her episodes and she's been really good at that kind of interaction between mm-hmm. the characters. And the directors, too, and of course, the cast who play these parts are excellent at acting out these things. But as they're planning this break-in, I was expecting to hear Zelina say something again about her beautiful feminine voice, but that's (laughs) not quite (laughs) what it was. My favorite Zelina quote of the night? (laughs) (laughs) She was good. That This was a funny scene. It was like, I can't believe they didn't know they were being conned, but... She she just does such a good job. I totally understand why they wanted to bring her back or keep her on the show. I didn't know they were being conned other than she cared whether Regina appeared in front of a blade. Well, yeah, because that's the part that was like, seriously, they're not that smart. Well, then again, she could have been saying all of that because she realized their plan could actually work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I liked how excited Snow White was to be in charge of guarding Zelina. Oh, I'd be delighted. I did feel that in the next scene when Arthur's, you know, brewing up some acid or whatever he dumps on people's faces, (laughs) he just seems to be overreacting. Like, I feel like he needs to take a deep breath. Everyone needs to sit in a circle, maybe around the round table, and they just need to talk about their feelings because his way of dealing with his feelings is very unhealthy. You need to get some meditation, some breathing techniques going on in there. 
He's like, this is war now. Like, seriously, it's like, it's a sword. Calm down. And see, it hadn't really occurred to me. But just a couple of episodes ago, I was still like, I think Arthur's just, you know, he's just confused. He's kind of, he wants to do this thing, but he's going about it the wrong way. Now he's just crazy cakes. He's just like, I'm just like, yeah, "Yeah, he's boiling up something to melt people yeah that's just what he does he sits in his tower and he just does stupid emotional like reactionary evil things and that's Mm -hmm. i guess just him now i'm done defending him it didn't even occur to me to try to find figure out how this could be the logical conclusion of the things that have happened in his life it was just like oh yeah okay he's doing that now he's obsessed with his idea of camelot he's obsessed with something yeah (laughs) I'm glad they were quick to tell us the ladle and the pot have protection spells. (laughs) By the way, how did he do that without Zelina? Yeah, I was confused about the Zelina thing. I thought there might be a deleted scene as I go to often when I'm confused. I was just confused about when her deal with Arthur kind of happened. Like, was it after she knocked out Snow White or was this already planned? I think it was already planned because in that wandering around when she found the tunnel, she also met with Arthur and wrote things down in some way to communicate to him, hey, I'll be on your side. I'll help you. Or all she ever did was meet Arthur by herself. And then he said, hey, there's this tunnel. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably more likely. Emma expressed this concern that because she wasn't seeing the Dark Ones anymore, that meant that she'd fully embraced the darkness. Right. So I think as long as we see Emma seeing Dark Ones, that means she has not fully embraced the darkness. And keep in mind, she's still seeing the Dark Ones in Storybrooke. Yeah, well, he made an excuse as to why that was. And I, in part, I believe it because they're kind of like, this is historical. We want to see this with our own eyes. And so maybe that's why they're back. I forget what Rumpel actually said when he appeared in Storybrooke to her. But Rumpel has been appearing to her in Storybrooke in almost every episode. Yes, but the first time, what did he say to her? That he was essentially her guide to teach her about the darkness. First time in Storybrooke, though. Oh, first time. When she argued about why he was back and said, I already embraced the darkness, so why are you back? That's right. Yeah, she did say something like that. Yeah, he had some excuse maybe all dark ones just have access to previous dark ones in their Mm -hmm. conscious unconscious mind that's maybe what makes them so crazy i keep coming up with theories and yet we've sort of seen emma alone with the darkness in her head and none of that none of my theories reveal themselves in those moments (laughs) things like Maybe, and I think someone else had suggested, maybe Emma isn't actually the dark one at this point and she's being controlled by somebody else. But I don't think that's true either. I still think she's fighting more than she lets on, maybe more than she even knows. In Storybrooke, you mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I have a theory about that later. Mm. So as Emma and Merlin make it to this place where the eternal flame was, the the dagger, and I mentioned that I wanted to try and get screenshots of this, and I did, and I looked at all of the names that appear on the dagger as uh, Emma is there summoning the, the first dark one. And we saw the name Emma Swan, of course, Rumpelstiltskin, Zoso, Gorgon. Do you remember right. who that was? Yeah. Gorgon the Invincible, the, <laughs> the wild boar looking thing. That, <laughs> yeah. 
Reaspire, as I recall. Yeah. And then as that's uh, going by all of these words, the letters for Nimue were also appearing, but never that name in full, like some of these other names were. Besides that, there were no other names. Like even letters from other names, it was only these names that were cycling through on it. So sorry, we yeah. didn't learn any other names of anyone else. But it was neat to see Gorgon mentioned. That's that's a total hedging because they're like, if we show one or two other names, everyone's going to think that we have to tell those stories. And we also can't limit the number of dark ones at a certain point later in the story if we want to. So we better only show the ones we've committed to. <laughs> yeah. I want to see Gorgon's backstory. <laughs> Not really. This is the other scene that reminded me a lot of Buffy season seven. And anyone who's planning on watching it and has not yet watched it, do not listen to what I'm about to say. I'm totally going to spoil the finale of the entire series. But there, there's in the finale of the series, they basically use kind of the essence of this weapon called a scythe that was created specifically for the Slayers. They use the essence of that to kind of split the power of the Slayer and put it into everybody that has the potential to be the Slayer. And so it's this whole big revolutionary thing that the Slayer has always been alone in her fight. And then now suddenly there's so many of them and that they're not alone anymore. And so, I don't know, this whole scene about, you know, going back through the line and all of that kind of thing just reminded me of, of, Buffy, but also the the whole using the dagger to kind of contact the previous people and use their kind of power and essence to help them was very hmm. Buffy-esque. What? I wasn't listening because I don't want to be spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Hmm. And, you know, insights like that is why Erin makes herself to be such a valuable participant on one's <laughs> podcast. Our resident Buffy expert <laughs> from Canada. And charmed. <laughs> and charmed yes it's hard to not bring it up when the writers are the same right mm-hmm. and jane Espenson was huge on buffy so i try not to be too disturbed by that i like to think of them as brilliant and original i can't remember who it was that sent in this feedback or tweeted it or where it was or what but someone pointed out nicely that in this when emma was overpowering the darkness she yelled out i'm not nothing i was never nothing and that's quite a change from some of her thoughts of before, where she had essentially said before, I was nothing. I was always nothing. And here she's embraced that she is special. She's that special little snowflake. <laughs> that now happens to be the dark one also. Wow. Well, she's the savior. So I feel like it should be harder to tempt her because she already had power that she could actually use to protect her family, which is kind of what the dark one is trying to tempt her with power to protect her family. Did she not save Henry by using her power in the first place to wake him up? Her true love's kiss. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, This, this is definitely one of Emma's best moments ever. If not her best moment delivered powerfully. And the rest of that line, the power you have, I don't need. I just, ah, I love that whole thing. So good. And you would think to some degree, that this would be her winning her battle. Because Arthur said, not Arthur, Merlin said that if he didn't come down from there, it would be because she lost her fight. In a sense, sort of saying it wouldn't exactly be you. The same way he thinks of Nimue. 
it wouldn't be you killing me, which is how Emma thought of it. It would be you lost your battle. You wouldn't want to kill me, obviously, but yeah, that would come from you, but only after. I think it's a battle. This was a battle. But so so long as Emma has the darkness in her until they can cut it out of her, which is what they're talking about doing with the blade or cut it from her would be mm-hmm. probably a, <laughs> a nicer picture. Right. Um, I think until <laughs> until they do that, everything that she does is going to be a battle because it's like one time if she gives into the darkness, then that's what seems to be the turning point. Right. And I don't get the sense that Merlin battles darkness in the same way, but then he doesn't have that history of the power being passed on from one person to the next and sort of balling up all the darkness, if that's how it works. Yeah. I think there's a reason why it's taken Emma seemingly much longer to give in to the darkness. And I think that that will go back to what we learned about her last season, which was that she has no potential for darkness or no dark, whatever. Yeah, whatever happened there. She also got chased as the person with the most potential for darkness. So Details. Pesky details. But she does succeed in that battle, and they do walk down all of that, a lot of up. <laughs> yes, Jeremy? Mm, well, I can't tell what that means. And Aaron, you and I both pulled out Nimue's sort of long speech trying to convince Emma. We each have a different side of the coin. Uh, and <laughs> you, you wrote down more of the line, so why don't you share what that all was and your thoughts? Uh, so the line is when Nimue is kind of trying to tempt Emma into giving into the darkness. And she says, even when you love someone, you have to just say, no, this is mine. You can't take it away from me. And if they don't listen, if they try to stop you from being you, then you have no choice. You have to kill them. And we were talking in the pre-show. I said, oh, I think I really like that line, except for the end, you have to kill them. <laughs> right. And I said, maybe <laughs> you have to leave them would be more appropriate. Just because I hate the notion of having to lose yourself when you love somebody, like that you have to compromise so much of yourself in a relationship that you're no longer yourself. And if Mm -hmm. somebody expects you to do that, then is that really love? Right. And not really sustainable. The interesting thing that I find in this particular moment with her is that she's sort of an extreme example of what happens when you take that idea too far. Mm-hmm. She's being asked to change or or to turn away from something in her that clearly really is a problem and really does need to change. It's not an intrinsic part of who she is to kill. She was being asked to give up her revenge. She believed it was part of her, but it wasn't. And someone who loved her was asking her to put that aside. And she still clung to this sort of notion that she wasn't going to let him take that from her and off she started on this dark path so she kind of represents the extreme and what happens when you don't balance that with letting someone else speak into your life yeah in love i I agree with you we do have a very like (laughs) we we pulled different things from it but that goes back to what i was saying about his line i'm not I'm not doing this for him. I'm doing it for you. Right. Because he was really doing it out of love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's the difference. Yeah. That's good. I like that. Very deep. Good talk. (laughs) Good talk. (laughs) (laughs) So they come down from that a lot of up. 
And we get this nice little uh, recounting of how things happened. And this great, and I think a very, very important question comes up of, could someone wield the power of darkness for good? Someday, perhaps, there will be a person who's worthy to hold that much power and not let it burn through to darken their soul. But if we can wipe out the darkness, we'll never have to ask that much of anyone. All right. I think that's going to happen that we're going to see who that person is. Here's something to consider. Emma has not gone dark, just like Merlin didn't go dark. Now, she did get the dark one power put into her instead of the original Mm -hmm. Excalibur or original um, Holy Grail power put into her. So the power that she has has been tainted, but it's still the same power source originally. But it's maybe not her to be this one to wield both maybe it will be someone else right and maybe emma knows that and that's why everything is happening in storybook is she's trying to make that hero and one thing that we have yet to see is whether at any time in camelot she ever went sort of fully traditional dark one with the scaly skin and Mm -hmm. or if she's always been this sort of mixture of the light and the dark that she kind of is now in in Storybrooke. I feel like if they do go this way, that they find somebody who's worthy to hold both, I feel like it kind of has to be Emma. I think that it would be kind of redundant to be telling this story if it wasn't, especially considering last season and considering her role in this entire series as the savior. That would be something very savior-esque to be able to hold both. That right. would basically eliminate the dark one from existing if she chose to use that power only for Mm -hmm. good. And I like that better than where it looked like they might be heading with the way some things were worded an episode or two ago, where it sounded as if they might try to say, nah, the darkness is cool. You can, you can have that and the light and just use the darkness for good. But this is more like it's the same power, but most people just can't bear it. And they just, turn dark right Mm -hmm. so if they get rid of the darkness then it's just sort of it's like merlin sort of theoretically mechanically magically it should be identical because it came from the same place right yeah but it's been tainted yes by all the darkness we need some magical clorox bleach so once (laughs) they've cleaved the darkness from from the power if is it is she more powerful even than merlin if it's combined with what she already was born with i think so because merlin has said several times that he could be killed now it has to be under just the right kind of circumstances and i think the whole being killed sort of thing is because if the complete excalibur is used on merlin somehow it separates merlin from his magic and immortality and thus makes him killable it's not that it kills him as is but it makes Mm. him killable there's been nothing like that said about emma maybe emma is immortal she did say actually in this episode i'm immortal and kind of joked about that but maybe i think she is going to be the one she or henry will be the one to wield all of that power if she went fully dark i think hook would talk about her the same way merlin talks about nimue yeah yeah he doesn't see that as emma And we also see that it was a little spell that tethered Nimue's spirit 
to the dagger. Yes. So that do. she couldn't run wild and wreak havoc all across the lands. Somehow from a distance this was done. I don't know if I understand it. I think like you, I thought that would be more of an epic moment, mm-hmm. not just a voiceover montage. <laughs> um they made up for it with other things in this episode, but it was it was cool to see. I don't know if they needed to spend a long time on it, but it seemed sort of uh I don't know, easy. Yeah. I, I wanted to see more to that. And then certainly when we see in the round table room, Zelina does it just with oh. a wave of her hand. It's like, wait, where was the whole cauldron and the recipe and all of that? And you just do it with a wave of your hand after reading this book and poof they made it's now tethered. Tethering easier than adding tethering to your mobile phone plan. <laughs> <laughs> Did they make it easier than blood magic, though? <laughs> easier than blood. They, uh, I mean, oh, yeah. Like, wh- now, is it because it was Excalibur that it was so easy? Yes, I think so. Because it was Excalibur, because it was Merlin. Same thing with the dagger here. Because it was the Holy Grail and because it was the dagger, I think that's what allowed the tethering. I don't think you could tether anyone else to either the sword or the dagger i don't know if jane espenson writes these episodes in sort of like the order that we see the scenes but if she does i just imagine this moment where she's almost done with the episode and she's really tired and maybe it's really late because this scene between the ease of the tethering and the lines zelina's lines <laughs> I mean, just an example. Cookies are done, and by cookies, I mean. And then she goes into her explanation. What was that? Okay, but then there was like an awesome line in this scene too. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of really funny lines, but uh, yeah, I just I it also sounded like whoever was writing them was very tired at the time, and they went with it. <laughs> They're in the round table room. Um, Merlin pointed out that his prophecy is still to be fulfilled. He did say to Arthur, you will do that. You will use Excalibur to rid the land of darkness. I do wonder if he meant, if you give it to me right now. That's a good point. So then that choice for him to not do it, did that undo that confidence that Merlin had? Yeah, Merlin didn't seem relaxed in the way that... Yeah, this is all part of what I've foreseen. Doesn't didn't really look like that was what was going through his head. But I do think that if Arthur gave him the sword, then that could have been true. Now, when Arthur asked him to send away the people, hmm. I do wonder, is that when they left Camelot and then over to Storybrooke? I would wonder that too, except that that leaves no time for taking their memories and putting right. them into dream catchers and <laughs> finding baby Neil. Something feels yet to come. They yeah. also still had Excalibur with them instead of in Emma's basement. Unless it was something like Merlin sent everybody to the same time, because also Zelina was there with everyone else in Granny's when they all vooped back. Yeah. Vooped. But they are wearing the <laughs> same things, except the one major difference is Regina here in this scene when she was vooped away. <laughs> was wearing a red cape and in Storybrooke when they voop into Granny's or Granny's and all of them voop there uh-huh. that she doesn't have that cape. So the fact that they're also in Granny's no makes me think that 
something happens. They all run mm. to grannies. They flee there. Something happens. And that's how they then voop into story. I think they were vooped into grannies, but still in Camelot. I don't think, I think it was a little voop, not a big voop. It was like a people voop, not a people in building voop. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by voop. <laughs> and they're wearing the same clothes in all the flashbacks too. So Yeah, that's true. At some point they did start wearing the same outfits. Uh, when so in Camelot smell like the Camelotians do. Camelotians. <laughs> but Merlin is now... At Arthur's control. And Arthur is a big baby with a beard and half a sword. Half a man with half a sword solving riddles from a tree. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Who's the tree now being a person whose name is written on the half a sword and is under the control of it. So wait, who is the dagger now? Emma? Yeah, she has her own dagger. Yeah, I forgot. I forgot what happened in that final scene where he got vooped away. And then there's this crazy pregnant wicked woman who's with them. It's the hormones talking. (laughs) (laughs) She is so funny, though. She brings so much humor. Like, not awkward, charming humor, like legitimate humor. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Chloe had an interesting theory. And she said, perhaps if Merlin is in Arthur's control... Arthur made Merlin tell him about Nimue and then forced Merlin to leave the voicemail that the hero saw. That would explain why Merlin said to find Nimue. I think this is a really good point because remember, Merlin did look kind of weird or spaced out in that little voicemail. Well, people look different when they are in 3D holographic mist. Yeah. (laughs) And Chloe continued on saying, I also think that Arthur will find this memory in a dream catcher in Emma's shed. Then he will not realize that Nimue is dead because he saw a short memory of him forcing Merlin to say that. He will just think that Nimue will help him create his, quote, new Camelot, unquote. So he'll set out on a quest in Storybrooke to find her. Yeah, maybe. I think that certainly Merlin is Arthur's tool and Merlin is valuable to Arthur and powerful. And Arthur is obsessed with building Camelot. And maybe that's another reason why Emma brings everyone to Storybrooke and takes their memories is because Arthur started using Merlin to do horrible things. True. And the only way to make them stop is get them out of Camelot and take all of their memories, including Arthur, so Arthur doesn't know that he could control Merlin. Oh, that's a good one, too. Yeah, I like that. Before we move on to talking about this last scene of the episode and the thing that has many theories, I want to thank some people who left some very kind and honest reviews for us in iTunes. We appreciate every honest review you give, even if it's not fully positive. And one of these reviews was not fully positive. I'm pulling a positive from it, but we appreciate (laughs) those honest reviews. And if you haven't reviewed us yet, then please go to onespodcast.com and click on that iTunes or Stitcher link and you can write a review for us there. But Lokiverse said, the discussions are often interesting and funny. Thank you, Lokiverse. And Ashley the Vegan said, I've listened to pretty much all of the Once Upon a Time podcasts out there, and this is the only one you need. The attention to detail is amazing, and the chemistry of the group is enjoyable. I look forward to the podcast every week, and I will miss it greatly once Once Upon a Time comes to an end. Thank you! Yes, thank you. And I think the Ashleys who do eat meat would agree. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We really appreciate your 
reviews for us in iTunes. They encourage us and they help other people find the podcast as well. But the best thing you can do for us that really helps the most is tell other people about the podcast. Like get on Twitter and watch who else is tweeting about Once Upon a Time with the hashtag and then talk with them and maybe tell them about the podcast or share our podcast episodes in Facebook groups and Google Plus communities and, and Reddit subreddits and all of that kind of stuff. The easiest way to do that really is go to oncepodcast.com slash 218 and click on those sharing buttons there. You can share to Facebook, Pinterest, Google Plus, stumble upon reddit and several other places even tumblr and others so if you can do that that really helps us the most because that brings more people coming to listen to the podcast more theories a larger community of this fandom that we have over this great tv show so all of that's in the show notes at oncepodcast.com slash 218 now for the final scene it was really the same scene but it's split Mm -hmm. from the very beginning of the episode to the very end but it's really just the same scene (laughs) A little thing came out here is that Nimue was trying to prevent Emma from completing this quest before. Now she wants them to complete it. She said back then there was a chance that Emma would use the sword for good, kind of. So apparently there's no more chance? Well, not in her humble opinion. Which also explains why she broke the sword, because she didn't want Merlin to use it on her right in the beginning, but now she wants it back together. So that they can snuff out the light. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I guess. Snuff out the light from Emma or snuff out the light everywhere. I don't know. Or however it ends up defined in the end of this story arc. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I have to say, I loved that we heard a rumple laugh, a legit rumple laugh before any dialogue in this episode. <laughs> yeah. And the funny thing is that I kind of expected it. I saw Emma walk in with the two halves. And she or she walks up to them and she starts to do something. And I was like, he's just going to laugh at her and tell her she's doing it wrong. And that's basically what happened. Well, And Emma might be doing all of this with ulterior motives because she does put the dagger together and takes it, even though she remembered that warning. And uh, Alina Harris sent us this thought saying, I'm thinking Emma is going to use the sword not to destroy the darkness, but to control it and use it for good rather than evil. As she asked Merlin, is it possible to control it and use it for good? As Merlin said, if a person is strong enough, they can. Maybe Emma thinks she can be that person. As it has been said before, there will always be darkness and it can never be truly destroyed. But if you can control most of the darkness, maybe the darkness inside you won't take over. I also think Emma cast the curse to protect everyone and she erased their memories because she did something to them to help her to control the darkness. Interesting. Very interesting Mm. theory. Thank you for that, Alina. Yeah. I wonder if Emma has figured out some kind of magic compartmentalization (laughs) wherein she, she, Emma remembers what happened, but the dark one somehow doesn't remember Camelot. Um, Or she's, I, I was just thinking maybe it's like her heart has been, maybe she took her heart and like put a, spell on it so that they can't think of like they can't penetrate her heart so then she can't be truly dark or something because that would be a really good con to play with the dark one Mm. and then it would make sense her actions would make more sense if she thinks that she can be that person or if she has had some confirmation that she can be that person Mm. yeah interesting to say she was supposed to leave Excalibur alone she thought of those words 
and then she didn't leave Excalibur alone, so no matter how good her intentions are, Merlin has seen something. Well, he's seen bad things. Bad <laughs> things. Which will a... come from this. And we're not talking about stealing an Apollo bar. Probably. <laughs> she could, I guess. I was about to say, maybe that was before when she was originally going to do it in the Enchanted Forest or in Camelot. Oh, but then, time. But then that doesn't make sense because the Dark One said that they didn't want her to do it then because in the other side of things, bad things like good things would have happened. Yeah. I did really like this scene, how it was being built up. I liked the the special effects, mm-hmm. the choreography of it, the the tension of seeing mm-hmm. Emma putting this together and all of that magic going on. Other than that it messed with my head that she put the point of the dagger yes. toward the broken piece. But then I was thinking if she put the handle in, she'd have to be grabbing onto the blade, Yeah, which she could, but maybe yeah. that sounded painful. It doesn't seem painful. very sharp. <laughs> she just had to get all the pieces in there somehow. Did the uh, broken Excalibur still say Merlin? Could we see a clear shot of that? We couldn't see that. No. Yeah. It probably didn't. Because that's really important. It is. Because we don't know if Merlin's still alive. Maybe you now know, it just says Excalibur. <laughs> right. It has its own name. You know what we did see? Oh, that'll be interesting, by the way. Does it have Merlin's name? Does it have Emma's name? It probably has... Emma's name. I think it didn't have anyone's name. Oh. At least what we saw of it. It kind of should be restored now. Maybe nobody's tethered to anything. I don't know what that would mean. Maybe. But regardless of what we didn't see on the sword, what we did see very clearly was Emma's tattoo, her flower tattoo on her wrist, almost conspicuously Hmm. as she reached for the sword. Yeah. Hmm. Like they want to remind us, hey, there's this. There's this. This is Emma. I don't know what it means. Which they've never explained. No. At all. But it is intentional. Yes. Well, and they've confirmed Emma has a tattoo. Jennifer Morrison does not. Right. So when they add it in, it's there because Emma has a tattoo. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I wonder if it was also intentional that all of the dark ones with the glowing eyes look like Jawas from Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I thought that was kind of funny. That was that was sort of the visual equivalent of not showing the other names yeah. cycling on the dagger. I was like, here's Rumpelstiltskin. We've seen Gorgon. We've seen Nimue. And all these other guys just have glowing eyes and dark faces. We yeah. can't see who they are. And we couldn't see Zoso in there. But he's even a side character to all of the All of the other dark ones are side characters. But boy, that's a lot of dark ones. But now we know why that gate that's been bothering me all season is in the basement cave it was open and they were all standing in there oh yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) creepy scene but it was really neat seeing them all standing there watching part of this scene this awesomeness and everything is one word for it (laughs) and it's kind of like you listening (laughs) to this podcast except without the glowing eyes well in my head they all have glowing eyes but we do appreciate you listening sending your feedback listening to these long episodes as we get really in depth as stuff gets deeper and deeper but we would love for you to continue this conversation now that we've finished the conversation in the podcast, you can comment on the show notes at oncepodcast.com slash 218. That's also where you can go to share this episode with all of your friends and family and join the forums over at oncepodcast.com slash forums. It's free and easy, and you can talk about any episode over there. You can discuss spoilers. You can even have off-topic conversations over there. It's a great place to hang out in the chat room, to hang out all day when you should be working, or doing other amazing things 
in that chat room and building great relationships there. There have been some great friendships come from that. It's a great community. And check out all of that then at oncepodcast.com. Please connect with us on Twitter at OncePodcast. And I'm Daniel J. Lewis on Twitter at The Ramen Noodle. I'm Jeremy Laughlin on Twitter at Fleegon. That's P-H-L-E-G-O-N. I'm Aaron, and I'm on Twitter at Aaron J. Cruz. This podcast would not be possible without our great team of volunteers who help us episode after episode. So special thanks to Corbin for sorting our feedback, Jack for writing our show notes, John Buchanan for editing our episodes, Hunter Hathaway and Jacqueline for providing our spoilers. You'll hear from them in a moment. Jacqueline and Matthew Paul for moderating the forums, Keb managing our timeline, and my fellow co-host doing this podcast with me. So until next time, remember, take the power. 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 And thanks for listening. Once Podcast is a proud member of Noodle Mix Network. Find more of our award-winning and award-nominated podcasts to make you think, laugh, and succeed at noodle.mx. Big thanks to our heroes for sponsoring this episode. If you'd like to be one of them and keep the podcast going, growing, and improving, then please go to oncepodcast.com slash hero. And thank you for your support. Hi, Oncers. I'm Hunter Hathaway. And I'm Jacqueline. And it's spoiler time for Once Podcast. We have a lot to talk about because this week is episode 508, Birth, and 509, The Bear King. So, in the first hour, Birth, tensions in Camelot come to a head when Merlin, now under Arthur's control, delivers an ultimatum to Emma. Hand over the Dark One dagger and the Promethean spark, or he will kill her entire family. Refusing to give in, Emma and our heroes face off against Arthur, Merlin, and Zelina in an epic battle of magic and will. Just when the end is in sight, Emma is forced to make a gut-wrenching choice that no one saw coming. Back in Storybrooke, Zelina's pregnancy mysteriously accelerates and Hook goes to new and desperate lengths to get answers from the Dark Swan. In the second hour, the Bear King, Zelina, and Arthur journey to Dunbroch on a mission to retrieve an enchanted relic that will provide the advantage they need to vanquish Emma and our heroes. Their path will cross with Merda's, who is on a journey of her own to pay a debt to her, that her father, King Fergus, owed the witch when he died. Merida enlists the help of two friends, Mulan and Ruby, but in order to satisfy the witch and save Dunbrock, she must discover the identity of the knight who killed her father. In flashbacks, Merida learns about bravery and honor as she trains for a combat that and rides along Fergus in the infamous battle that claims his life. A lot wow. going on. It's It's a lot going on. And, you know, there are some things that instantly we can pick up on so for example the mysterious pregnancy and the fact that david anders is returning as dr whale means we are probably going to see the birth of baby green bean but considering last week she didn't even look pregnant right i don't know how her pregnancy is mysteriously (laughs) accelerated but it is and so there's that okay so birth is written by david h goodman and jerome schwartz and is directed by eagle ellison and but as you said, it guest stars David Andrews back as Dr. Whale, and we have Ingrid Torrance as Nurse Ratched. Yes. And then The Bear King is written by Andrew Chambliss and is directed by Jeffrey Hildrew. 
and or of, Joffrey, jo- or perhaps Joffrey, maybe. Yes, my friend had his name spelled that way, and it was Joffrey. Joffrey. <laughs> and in that episode, of course, we are going to see Jamie Chung and Megan Ori return as Mulan and Ruby. And we're pretty sure this is the episode where the lesbian, gay, transgender, and bisexual relationship will be explored. And at last check, we think it's probably Mulan and Ruby. Yeah. So look for that in this episode. Yes. We have other guest stars. We've got Glenn Keel as King Fergus, Caroline Morhan as Queen Eleanor, Lily Knight as Witch, Richard Straw as Edgar, Paul Telfer as Lord McIntosh, Marco D'Angelo as Lord McGuffin, Josh Hallam as Lord Dingwall, and then finally, why we didn't have this last week, Matthew Olsen as Brother One, Jordan Olsen as Brother Two, and Colton Barnett as Brother Three. They must finally get speaking lines. Yeah. But it would have been nice if they'd given us names last right. week. Right. It's obviously not enough that they get real names. They're just brothers one, two, and three. But they probably at least speak this but week. Even in the movie, they didn't even have names. Right. They were just boys. <laughs> so this week, in preparation for the big two-hour episode, we do have quite a few promos. Yes, we do. The first one is the standard one that airs at the end of every episode. Mm-hmm. And we see Emma fighting King Arthur. Um, there's a lot of Captain Swan moments in the promo, um, including Hook professing his love for Emma, no matter what she's done. And there's something going on at the Dark Swan house. It looks like there's kind of a spell that um, sort of washes over the house when she slams the sword into the ground. Mm-hmm. And we do see Regina warn Hook that Emma is manipulating him. And then they the voiceover starts talking about a starting startling revelation and, um, you know, we ha- we end with the swan swimming on the title card. I thought that was so cool. I yeah, was I like really liking that. Mm-hmm. So then, not too long ago, Promo 2 came out. And really, it is the entirety of Promo 1, besides <laughs> very, very little. Um, it was very Zelina-centric. Um, she confronts Emma, asking her what she's going to do. Then you get pretty much the entire first promo. And then... You see, it looks like Emma starts fighting with Merlin, and they both have their magic going. Yeah, it kind of looks like if you've seen Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, it sort of looks like Dumbledore versus Voldemort at the end, the Battle of the Ministry. Yes. And then, shockingly... (laughs) Yeah, shockingly. We got a Canadian promo. We did. We haven't gotten one all season. And it was really hard to hear. It was. Um, so it's it's kind of brief, but we do see Emma talking to Henry and Camelot, saying she wants to get rid of the darkness but has to use it one more time. There's a scene where it looks like Hook is either yelling or summoning Emma. And I and Hunter sort of agree that um, Emma is probably going to tell Hook what her plan is. Or part of it. or At least part of it. But then, of course, in present day, he can't remember because of amnesia. Right. The last little scene of that, Hook shows up with, I'm guessing it's in Regina's office or, I don't know, it looks like it's present day. And he's like, looks like he's hurt and he's asking for help. Yeah. So I don't know if that's part of the plan. I don't know. I think that in the first hour, definitely, we're going to learn all about Emma's plan and really what happened in Camelot six weeks ago. Yes. That's kind of the big episode. And then the Bear King is a bit of a breather um, with our secondary characters. Yes. 
So funness. But we did not get a sneak peek yet. They'll probably release that probably later today or tomorrow. Right. For those of you who don't know, Hunter and I actually record these a couple hours before the podcast, the live airing of the podcast, which is why when we say there's no sneak peek and then it turns out that we did get a sneak peek, we're not lying to you. It's just that we don't have it at the moment. Right. But we did get some photos and we got one single one at first. This was a leaked one. Yes, I I did see that one. Um, Yes. Emma's holding the sword, a glowing sword. It is glowing. And it's broken. It is broken. So it's Camelot six weeks ago because Emma's wearing her white gown and she's kneeling over what looks like Hook, who is knocked out. Yes. Looks like he's unconscious. So whatever Emma's plan is, it's probably involving Hook. And then just like in the last hour, they have finally released a lot of the promo footage photos for this episode, but they don't release give away anything. It's a lot of stuff we've already seen in the promos, but there's a lot of Hook and Emma in Storybrooke because she's dark and Hook has his pirate scope and he's looking off into the distance at, I'm guessing, people coming. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of those. And then flash over to in Camelot, Arthur's holding up the broken sword. Zelina now has new clothes. She's got a new outfit and she looked like she did back in the season when we first met her. What was it? Season 3B. 3B. Yep. She's um, Wicked Witch then again. Yeah, but she doesn't have her necklace yet. Oh. But she's got the hat on and she looks like she did back then. And in one photo, she's actually holding this little gold box. So I don't know what's in it unless that's what they're going to put the ember in. Mm. And Emma has her dagger and it looks like she's getting ready to fight someone. She's crouched down really low holding the dagger weirdly and... Yes, it's just weird and awkward looking. So they're mostly, it sounds like, um, stills from the first hour. And that's kind of what we saw with all the promos, too. There's pretty much nothing, if anything, about the episode of The Bear King. I think they're keeping it a surprise as to the whole Ruby and Mulan coming back. Yeah. So... But we did get a script tease. Yes, we did. I love script teases. (laughs) Mostly you love our reenactments. Of course, because, I mean, they're funny. (laughs) Okay, so in this one, we have Dr. Whale and Regina. Who do you want to play? Well, you love Regina, so I will be Dr. Whale. All righty. So Dr. Whale extends his hand as to shake, and he goes, Dr. Whale. We really need another doctor in this town. What's with the dye job? (laughs) And for those of you who don't know, David Anders has been starring on the CW show iZombie, where he plays Blaine, uh, and he has to dye his hair for that. It's a very zombie white, because he's dead. Yes. Um, And if if you're not watching that show, quick shout out, you should. It's actually amazing. Okay. I haven't haven't watched it yet. It's really good. But yes, so I'm excited to see him. It's been quite a while. I think the last time we saw him was him delivering Snow White's baby. All right. So we have some other information outside of these two episodes. Yes. Um, Some big one. The the big one here really is not necessarily surprising, but is fun. We have Victoria Smurfit reprising her role as Cruella DeVille for multiple episodes in season 5B that will start with episode 513, which is one episode after the 100th. Yeah, so she will not be with all the other guest stars that have already been announced. Right, like Cora, the Blind Witch, and Peter Pan. And, and um, the Mirror. And the Mirror, yes. Giancarlo Esposito is returning. But we do get to see her multiple times throughout the ne- second half of the season. Yeah, which will be fun. Yeah. 
And we also got a new episode title, 513, which will not be until March. So they're very ahead of the game, which I like. Mm -hmm. Um, It's called Labor of Love, and it's written by Andrew Chambliss and Dana Horgan. Yes. And just a little bit of a, a prediction here. We think that this is most likely a Hercules and Megara Meg centric episode. Um, last week, we did tell you about the casting call for Hercules and Meg. And if you're at all familiar with Greek mythology, you know, Her- uh, Hercules had 12 labors that he had to perform. One of interest, um, he has to sneak into the underworld and steal Cerberus, the three headed dog who guards over the underworld. And so with Victoria Smurfit returning, of course, Cruella had her magic and she was able to control dogs. So maybe that's why she's coming back. She's going to be helpful in the underworld. Oh, fun. Yeah. So that's all we're going to give you this week. Um, There has been some more stuff coming out, but we'll be able to talk about that when it comes closer because it doesn't happen till March. Right. So we don't want to forget about that and then it'd be a surprise again. So we'll just talk about it closer to those episodes. So I'm Hunter. You can follow me on Twitter at Bit of Pixie Dust. I'm Jacqueline, and you can follow me on Twitter at Punk underscore Bunny underscore 87. Until next time, Wincers.